You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Well, good to see you. Let's, let's just take a moment and pray before we uh, hear from God in His Word this morning. Would you join me? Father, there are a thousand things that we could be thinking about, concerned about, anxious about right now that would distract us from hearing your voice. Thank you for speaking clearly in your word. Thank you for your spirit who takes his word, Lord, and illuminates our understanding. Spirit, as we quiet our hearts before you now, would you make us attentive to what we need to learn, what we need to embrace? Jesus, would we be less confident in ourselves and even more confident in you as a result of today? Lord, speak through me now. Teach us, Jesus. That's why we're here, to hear from you. We ask it for your sake. Amen. So this week I was thinking a lot about confidence. Confidence. You ever met a confident person? Everyone has confidence when things are going well, don't they? Everyone. When life goes according to plan, confident. As Luka Doncic said when the Mavs were down, everyone talks trash when you're up in the series. Everyone. You ever met someone who has confidence when they're down 3 nothing in the series? Let's just take this out of the realm of sports. Have you, have you met someone who has confidence, hope, joy, boldness when things are not going well? when things fall apart, in the midst of opposition or hostility, they're still confident. That's a weird kind of confidence, isn't it? Have you met that kind of person? How do you, how do you get that? Paul had it. In Romans 8, he says this. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's an astounding statement. Paul doesn't just say we're conquerors. He says we're more than conquerors in Christ. What does that mean? Any worldly conqueror conquers through victory. We conquer, we prevail, we triumph even in what? Defeat. Paul says in all these things, in what? In the things he just talked about, in tribulation, in distress, in persecution, in famine, in nakedness, we still conquer in Christ. That's confidence, isn't it? That, that's unlike any kind of confidence this world has to offer. Can you actually have that? Is it possible? Paul had it. But let's be honest, you, you read this and doesn't part of you go, okay, but that's Paul. That's Paul. He's an exception, right? Like Jesus spoke to him audibly all the time. One time God just took him up to heaven for fun, apparently, right? He's just sort of floating around doing miracles. Paul doesn't count. 
But Paul doesn't say, I'm more than a conqueror in Christ. He says, we are more than conquerors. He's saying we, our birthright as God's people, is this sort of invincible confidence and assurance in the darkest, scariest, most evil days of your life. Do you want that? You can have that. You know, it's not as unusual as you might think. In fact, you can look at church history and you see glimpses of this again and again and again. Three stories I was just thinking about this week from three different people, three very different places. Second century, Justin Martyr, in living in Israel from there, he ends up getting killed for his faith. His whole Christian life is opposition from the Roman Empire and he doesn't seem to be bothered by it at all. In fact, in one of his letters as a defense of Christianity, he, he says, your threats, Roman Empire, your opposition, it, it cannot deter us in the slightest. And he writes the greatest mic drop line of all time. Do you know what he says? You can kill us, but you can't hurt us. You know, I might never get a tattoo, but that's what I'm getting, all right? If I get inked, if I get inked, that's worth putting on your body, right? Because what do you say to that? Like, mm, it just makes me pumped up, right? Like, what do you say to that person? You can't hurt me. Fast forward two centuries, John Chrysostom in Turkey had a similar moment. The Byzantine empress, Queen Eudoxia, commanded him to stop preaching the gospel, but Chrysostom refused. So she started threatening him with all of these threats. Look at how he responds. First, she threatens to banish him from the empire. Here's what he said. You cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. But I will kill you, said the empress. No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ's in God, said John. I will take away your treasures, said the emperors. No, you can't, for my treasure is in heaven, and my heart is there. But I will drive you away from your friends, and you will have no one left. No, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you. There is nothing you can do to harm me. Don't you wish you knew the Bible well enough to talk like that? And you get in that situation. Fast forward to the 18th century. John Wesley, the great 18th century preacher, he's on a ship headed towards America. And on board are a group of German Christians who are known as Moravians. And if you know anything about the Moravians, they were weird people. Weird in their devotion to Jesus. They looked different. They started a prayer meeting in 1727, and it lasted for 100 years. They had someone praying around the clock for a for 100 years, and during that time, out of that prayer meeting, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of missionaries went to the ends of the earth and started the modern global missions movement. And so Wesley is on a boat with those people. They're on the Atlantic, and, and the Moravians start a worship service, and they start singing a psalm. And, and then a storm descends on the boat that was absolutely terrifying. Wesley wrote this in his journal, the sea broke over, split the mainsail in pieces, covered the ship, and poured in between the decks as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. So you get the scene, the ship is about to be ripped in pieces. And all of the English passengers on board start shrieking and screaming and cursing and running to and fro. And the Moravians, men, women, Children don't even stop their worship service. They just keep singing the same psalm. In fact, they come to the end of the psalm and then the storm stops. 
And so Wesley goes up to one of them and goes, were you not afraid? And here's what the person said. No, but were not your women and children afraid? No, our women and children are not afraid to die. And Wesley realized right then that they had something he did not have. He wrote in his journal, it was the most glorious day I have ever seen. Do you hear that, kids? The children weren't afraid to die either. There's a, there's a confidence available right now in Jesus Christ that is unshakable, and you see it again and again and again. Do you want it? I want it. In the scariest moments of life, the world cannot make you that way. There is no confidence this world offers that will make you like that. It is totally foreign to our experience and you say, Jeff, that sounds impossible. I mean, I have trouble trusting God in a traffic jam. It's available. But to have it, you have to see what you already have in Jesus. And if you know that, you're going to have a confidence that this world can't give. That's what I want to talk about as we continue our series in Isaiah today. We're in the book of Isaiah because Jesus took his cues from Isaiah. If you look at how Jesus understood himself, how he understood his mission, how he understood the church's mission, it all goes back to the book of Isaiah. And so we really can't understand our calling in life apart from this book either. That's why we're looking at it. And really the heart of Isaiah comes in the latter half of this book and it all centers on this mysterious character we've been looking at who's called the servant. The servant is this mysterious guy, but he's God's guy to accomplish God's Mission, and it's clear that God is going to accomplish his purposes through the servant. There's four songs about the servant. We spent three weeks on the first three songs. We're spending two weeks on the fourth song, and I hope you can see why. The fourth song is the most important song. Isaiah 53, really the end of 52 and then 53, it ties all of the other servant songs together. And, and this song, this passage, really ties together the entire Bible. As my dad said last week, Isaiah 53, 6 is the middle verse of the Bible. This is kind of the middle of the Bible, and that's fitting because this passage, it's sort of like the hinge on which the whole biblical story turns. Isaiah 53 is where we see clearly revealed that God's plan to redeem everything will be accomplished through the servant and specifically through his dying and rising. We get a clearer picture here of Jesus Christ's work than anywhere in the Old Testament. In fact, I would say anywhere in the Bible. This is it. This is the clearest. And there are two aspects to the servant's work. There's suffering, but there's also success. Isaiah 53 doesn't just talk about the suffering of the servant. It talks about the success of the servant. Last week was suffering, right? We looked at the suffering. That's the middle section. But this passage is bookended by statements of the servant's success. And those bookends help us interpret the suffering. In other words, by looking at these beginning and ending passages, we see that the servant's suffering isn't a defeat at all. In fact, it's a victory. It's God's victory over sin and death. So we're going to look at the triumph this week. And it's important that we see the triumph of the servant for this reason. We saw last week that following Jesus, the servant, means we have to serve, right? And serving is going to hurt. 
going to be overlooked, underappreciated. You're going to face hostility, rejection. If you're following Jesus, how do you stay confident? How do you stay confident in the middle of that? You've got to see the triumph of the servant. And here's the key thing. Here's what everything hangs on this morning. You have to see that the servant's triumph belongs to you. Because Jesus wins, you win, period. And you share in that victory this morning. In fact, you share in two things. You share in his vindication. You share in his ultimate victory. And because the servant is vindicated, so are you. Because the servant is victorious, so are you. What does that mean? It means that you are as secure in God as you could ever be right now. And your future is as bright as it could possibly be. And if you actually believe those things, you talk like a Justin Martyr. You can't hurt me. You can't hurt me. Because that's how safe I am in the sun. That's the confidence we can have. Vindication, victory. All right, let's look at the vindication. How was Jesus vindicated? How does that benefit us? How does it give us confidence? Hang with me. This is a deep dive, okay? I promise you it applies to your life. So let's look at this. How is the son vindicated? This is how the song begins. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. That word wisdom there, it means success. The servant will be effective. We'll read later that God's will will prosper in the servant's hand. In other words, unlike the Niners, the servant will carry out the game plan perfectly. He will execute what God wants done perfectly. He will have success. He will be exalted. But here's the thing. No one was expecting that he was going to be exalted. In fact, when he ultimately is exalted, everyone is shocked because there's this huge reversal of fortunes. That's what God says is coming. Look at verse 13. He says to the servant, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. This is the ultimate before and after, isn't it? God is saying, my servant will be so tortured, beaten, humiliated, that he will be unrecognizable. That's the suffering of the servant. They won't just ask, is this the servant? They're going to ask, is that even a human? He's so dehumanized by what is done to him. And yet his end state will be what? He will be so glorious, so powerful that we will be left in stunned silence. He's humiliated to the depths. He's exalted to the heights. God's going to vindicate his servant. Now, how is he vindicated? The passage doesn't tell us. But you know, the word resurrection never appears in the passage, but you need a resurrection to make sense of the passage. Because the idea is inescapable. It's clear the servant dies, and now he's alive, and not just alive, but alive and well. We'll read later, he will prolong his days. And so again, who else could this be but Sunday school answer, right? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is exalted in his resurrection. 
in his ascension to heaven, in his seating at God's throne. He is high and lifted up. And one day the resurrected Jesus, the King of Kings, will return to the earth and he will claim the earth because it rightfully belongs to him. And on that day, the kings of the world will do what kings never do, shut up. They'll stop talking and they'll kiss the ring of the resurrected son on bended knee. And the only thing they will say is Jesus Christ is Lord. That's it. That's what's coming. That's the triumph of the son. But how does God vindicate Jesus? How does God say, this is my servant in whom I am well pleased? Ultimately, it's through the resurrection. What is the resurrection? The resurrection is God's stamp of approval on the obedience of Jesus Christ. As Paul says, we looked at this last week, Philippians 2, God has highly exalted Jesus through the resurrection, the ascension, all these things. Why? Because Jesus was obedient. Because Jesus poured out his soul to death. That was the confidence Jesus had. That's why he could go to the cross with such confidence because his reward was so clear that God will stamp me with his approval. The world's assessment of me is wrong and I will be vindicated as the righteous one. Remember what he says in Isaiah 50? He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. That's what Jesus is thinking about as he goes to the cross. The resurrection of Jesus is God's yes to Jesus Christ. That he is the son of God. He is my beloved. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy 3. He says, Jesus was justified or vindicated in the spirit. Paul's talking about the resurrection when the spirit of God raises Jesus from the dead. Paul says in that moment, Jesus is justified. What does that mean? It means that God declared Jesus to be what Jesus is. Righteous, holy, blameless. Something we wouldn't have thought looking at Jesus because what do all the rulers of the world do? Condemn him. The resurrection is God's way of saying, nope, Jesus is perfect and blameless. See, death couldn't hold Jesus. Do you know why? Because death is a consequence of what? Sin. The wages of sin is death. And so if you have a sinless man, death cannot hold him. That's why Peter says in one of the first sermons of the church, it was impossible for death to hold him down. He could take on death and kill death because death had no claim on him. There was no sin to be found in him and the resurrection demonstrates it, that Jesus is perfectly holy and righteous. That's astounding. Here's the more astounding thing. Who does the servant share his justified, vindicated status with? Sinners. <laughs> Us. At the end of the passage, Isaiah says this, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see, that's the servant, and be satisfied by his knowledge, shall the righteous one, the justified one, my servant, make many, who's that? Everyone who believes in him, to be what? Accounted righteous. Accounted righteous doesn't mean Jesus cleans us up a little bit and makes it better. It means that we are declared righteous with the righteousness that belongs to the servant. See, that's what Jesus was looking at from the cross. He could see the many people, and he knew it. He knew he was executing a plan that would make these people right in God's sight because he was going to give him his own standing. That's why Paul says it this way in Romans 4, that Jesus was delivered up 
for our, oh, did I miss that verse? Oh, that's a good one. That's too bad. Oh, man. That's the problem with putting your slides together the last minute. You miss good verses. Um, Paul says in Romans 4 that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, but was raised for our justification. What does that mean? In other words, the justification of Jesus is ours. It belongs to us now. Here's the astounding thing, that when we place our faith in Jesus, we who are sinful, who are guilty in God's court, he looks at them in Jesus and he says to sinners like you and me, actually, you're not guilty, you're acquitted, you're righteous, you're blameless because of Jesus Christ. That's what he says. And now the natural question you should ask then is, how does that work? Because how can a just God look at sinful me and say, no, you're justified? We get the answer in the next half of verse 11. The reason that we can share in Jesus' justification is because he shared in our condemnation. Jesus took away our sin. Jesus gave us his righteousness. That's why Jesus went to the cross. Verse 11 says that Jesus bore our iniquities. The only reason that we are free of condemnation is because Jesus bore your condemnation on the cross. Everything your sin deserved, Jesus took then. The, the Bible describes us as being in Christ. In Christ. And the image it uses is a marriage. And that's a great image because, you know, in marriage, the two become one, right? Right? And what we often say at weddings is, you know, when the two become one, my assets become your assets. My liabilities become your liabilities, right? And y'all know that if you're married, right? When you get married, like, wow, look at your 401k. I'm married into that. Or you go, wow, look at your student debt. Now I'm married to that. But that's just as much my student debt as yours now, right? They're going to call me just as quick as they call you if I don't pay it. On the cross, all we have to offer when Jesus goes to the cross in this marriage is liabilities. All Jesus has to offer is assets. And in that marriage, Jesus takes all our liabilities of debt and he gives us all the assets of righteousness. And he takes everything that would keep us from God and he gives us everything that would bring us to God. And that's the great exchange of the cross. We get to switch records. We take Jesus' record, Jesus gives us our record. And that was the eternal plan of God, that the Son would bear our punishment. This is the, the shocking thing, verse 10 here. Yet it was the will of the Lord, the Father, to crush him, the servant. He shall put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Now think about this. Who ultimately put the son to death? The father. The father. That's what this text is saying. It is the father's grand orchestration that would put the son in a place where he is delivered over to death for our sins. The New Testament writers just take this for granted. It is the predetermined plan of God that Jesus went to the cross and it was the plan of the father to have the son crushed under our sins. And that should shock us, shouldn't it? it should, we get too familiar with the cross. And we lose the astounding nature of this, right? I think that's one reason that the story of Abraham and Isaac is in the Bible. 
is just to shock us because God asked Abraham to give him who? Isaac. And we instinctively revolt at that, don't we? And go, no. God shouldn't ask for a son. And ultimately the answer is God didn't require a son. In fact, there's nothing we could give God, not even what's most near and dear to us to atone for sin. But the thing God doesn't require us to do, the price I would not be willing to pay. I would not give you my kid. I love you. I don't love you that much. You're dying, not my kid. God's love would go to an extent that our love never would. That's the point. He would make a sacrifice. And it's very important to see when we're reading this that it is ultimately the love of the Father and the love of the Son that would lead them to create this plan in the eternal will of God where God the Father pours out his judgment on us. And God the Son takes a human nature and bears that judgment so we don't have to. Only God could come up with this plan. And here's what is so important for you to get and for you not to misunderstand. Okay, we believe in one God and three persons, right? Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here's what that means. The Father and the Son share the same nature, have the same will. Here's why it's so important. You could get the idea from this that there's an angry Father in heaven, and that's mad God. And then there's nice, sweet Jesus, and that's nice God. And then, you, and then nice God, Jesus, has to convince angry God, Dad, to love us. And that's why he goes to the cross. Here's the problem with that. What would motivate the Father to send the Son in the first place? His love. It's the initiating love of the Father. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. And it's the Son's love that responds and says, yes, I love them too, so I will go to the cross and play this part. And it's important for us to understand also that Jesus hates sin just as much as his Father does. It's not like a wrathful father and a nice Jesus. Jesus is the judge of the world who will judge this world and cast people into hell. Jesus hates sin just as much as his father. So you have a triune God who hates sin and loves sinners. And in a plan that we would never have guessed or come up with, God the Father sends God the Son and the power of God the Spirit to take on our nature and bear the weight of sin because we can't bear it. Those are the only two options. Either you bear your sin or a substitute does. And if we have to bear it, it's unbearable. This is the eternal plan of God. This is what the whole sacrificial system was pointing to. The whole thing. That's why it goes on to say in Isaiah 53, that the servant poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You know, there were two people in the Old Testament who were responsible to, to, to make the relationship right between God and his people. You had the priest and you had the sacrifice, right? And here's what the priest would do. He would go towards the sacrificial animal and he would lay his hands on it and he would confess the sins of the people and lay them on the animal, right? And then the animal would be killed. And that's a sign of the sin of the people being placed on the spotless animal, the animal dies. And then do you know what the priest would do? He would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the people and he would pray and make intercession and say, forgive them, God. Let the judgment fall on the animal, not you. Guess what Jesus is? He's not just the sacrifice, he's the priest. He's both. He's the sacrifice, the, the spotless one who takes on our sin 
He's also the priest who sprinkles us and makes intercession for us. And here's the good news this morning. When you woke up, do you know what Jesus is doing in heaven right now? He's making intercession for you as the priest. Before you prayed to Jesus, Jesus was praying for you. Isn't that good news? And do you know what he's doing in heaven right now? He's appearing before the Father, showing his completed work and saying, accept them, Father, for you accept me. That's the kind of confidence you can have. That's you can't hurt me kind of confidence. It is impossible for the Father to turn away the presence of his Son. That means it's impossible for him to kick you out of heaven if you're in Christ. That is unshakable confidence. Now, here's what I think. I'm gonna get to application in a second. You hang with me, okay? But I think Paul was thinking about all of these things when he wrote Romans 8. Because this just sounds like Isaiah 53. Look what Paul says. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. We're justified in the servant. Who can condemn if God justifies? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is where? At the right hand of God, interceding, making intercession for his saints. You could not be more secure than you are right now if you're in Jesus. You have Jesus' status before the Father. And if God vindicates you in Jesus, guess what? You're vindicated. Jeff, should that change the way I live? I'm glad you asked. Yes. Yes, here's what it means. Three things, okay? First thing it means is that your failure is never final. Your failure is not final. Your future is eternally secure. And one of the reasons we lose confidence as Christians is because we sin and we sin the same sins over and over again and we lapse into self-condemnation. And we beat ourselves up and beat ourselves up and say, I'm going to do better next time. I'm going to do better next time. And you know what God says? There's no beating yourself up in Christ. In fact, Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation in Christ. Do you know why there's no condemnation in Christ? Paul goes on to tell you, because God condemned our sin in the skin of Jesus Christ. God has nothing but mercy and grace stored up for you because all of his condemnation has already been placed on the Son. So why on earth would you spend another day beating yourself up about anything? Sometimes people say, well, you know, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. Really? Really, it is God who justifies. Who is the one to condemn? Even you. Are you God? You know, God, I have standards, you know. I just, I just, I really, I mean, you might not take sin seriously, but I, I, it's God. God says acquitted, righteous, and that's your status. You're not cleaning yourself up to get there. You're there in God's eyes all the time. It doesn't fluctuate because it depends on Jesus, not on you, which means you're always welcome in God's presence. He's always delighted to see you. He's never exasperated with frustration at you because of your sin. In fact, his sin inclines his heart to you to help you. And if he does, 
let you feel the consequences. It's just his loving divine discipline. That's how, what you have. Your failure is never final. You don't have to live in self-condemnation. Here's the second thing you don't have to do anymore. Stop blame shifting. Right? If we're vindicated in Jesus, do you know what that means? That criticism against us isn't catastrophic. You, you notice how people blame shift? I don't know if you've noticed this. Parents, you know this. Have you, have you ever said like, you know what you did and your kid is like, oh, I'm cut to the heart. You were right. I was wrong. I know my sibling contributed to this thing, but you know, I, I need to own my share of the blame. Here's what I did. You, no. It's, it's always like you punched your sister. I didn't punch her. She was running towards me and I held my hand out like this and she hit the hand, right? Like it's now, you never admit things. And people don't change. They never want to admit they're wrong. That's why like almost like the majority of apologies you read from athletes and celebrities and politicians, you ever read them and go, huh? Like, I'm sorry for the way this situation has been interpreted and the feelings it has aroused. What are you even talking about? It's never like, no, I was wrong, right? The, the other thing we'll do is, is we'll know we did something wrong, but we'll play the percentage game with people, right? I know you don't do this, but we'll play the percentage game. We're like, like I know I was wrong in that situation, but they were 97% of the wrong. And I was 3% of the wrong. And so until they give an apology that sounds like 97% of the wrong, I am not gonna give them an apology that sounds like 3%. I know you don't think that way. I know you don't think, I've heard people do though, and um, I thought I'd mention that. Maybe I'll be helpful to you. Here's, here's the point though. Why do we instinctively blame shift and revolt at the idea that maybe it's, it's my fault? I'm in the wrong. Because that thought is too unbearable to bear. It's too close to, oh, if I'm the one who's wrong, am I wrong? Am I worthless? Am I just a mess up? But you don't have to live there if you're in Christ. Do you know what that means? That, that Christians should be the most open to being wrong, to being corrected, because other people's criticism of you, it doesn't define you at all. Jesus has already defined you. You're justified. You're secure. His verdict is already clear. So if you do screw up, okay, great, I screwed up. Thanks for telling me. And if it's true, then it's helpful. If it's false, who cares? You can't hurt me. Because God's already made his declaration clear. Final thing is that trials in this life, the opposition we face is very, very temporary. God's eternal declaration of you is vindicated. Guess what? At the resurrection, do you know what's gonna happen? Just as Jesus was vindicated, guess who else is gonna be vindicated? You. Everything that you suffered, the opposition that you experienced for following Jesus, the hardship, on that day, God honors you, vindicates you with resurrected life, and anyone who ever opposed you for following Jesus, overlooked you, underlooked you, all of them are silenced too. If we suffer with Jesus, Paul says, we will be glorified with him. We'll share in that vindication. Which means all the difficulty of this life and trying to love people and reaching for Jesus and all that, it's so temporary. That the vindication will be revealed. That will put all questions to bed about who, who was right. Those who followed Jesus, they made the right call.
That's what's coming. And that leads to the, the second point really quickly. You're already as secure as you, you can be. And what you have coming in Christ is just better than you could possibly imagine. The passage ends this way. It's a bad translation, I think, so I'm going to correct it. Um, I don't always do that, but sometimes I'm convinced. So it says, therefore, God, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong. That sounds like an anticlimax. The servant does all this stuff, and he gets a portion of blessings with a lot of other people. I think he deserves more than that. I think, I think a better translation is, is this, uh, and, and Alec Matir suggests it in his commentary, I will apportion to him the many, and the strong he will apportion as spoil. Here, here's what the text is saying. Jesus' victory, to the victor go the spoils, right? What does Jesus get for his obedience? He gets the world. He gets the many. That means us. We belong to him now, right? He's our king. We belong to him. Do you know who else he gets? He gets the strong. All those kings mentioned at the beginning of the passage. When he comes back, he says, You're, you belong to me too. In fact, everything belongs to me. You have to answer to me. Jesus inherits the world. Jesus is the only one worthy to reign. And when he comes back, God highly exalts on him. And, and we see in reality what Jesus says at the end of his ministry. Remember what Jesus says? All authority and on earth have been given to who? To me. And so when he comes back, we see that. And this world is the spoils of victory. Here's what's astounding about it. Who does Jesus share that victory with? Us. What, what does Paul say in Romans 8? That the one who gave his only son will also give us what? Everything. Think about it this way. God already did the thing that seems impossible, right? The thing we wouldn't expect him to do. He gave his only son for us. If God is willing to do that, it's an easy thing <laughs> to think, well, God's going to give us everything. That's what's coming to you, reigning with Christ, a new world belonging to you that you get to have with Christ forever. Like, can you read that and think, well, God's holding out on me. God, God he's just, he, he's not, he, he doesn't really want to bless me. Are you kidding me? Do you see what you have coming? I mean, think about it this way, right? Like, I, don't look at the stock market right now. It's not a good idea. And, and literally don't on your phones. I don't want to distract you. But, all right, you know, you get to my age, you start looking at your retirement plan. You're like, ooh, that's bad. And then you start checking it more. You're like, oh, that's bad. And then you start projecting out, how is this thing going to end? You know, if you're close to retirement, you're even more worried about it, right? And what if your stock account, it just said a trillion all the time? And then it's, uh, it's going to have a 10% return. Forever. It's looking good. Stock market crashes. Nope. Still getting that eternal return. Still coming. If you knew you were that secure, like how generous would you be? You'd be hilariously generous, right? Who cares? I, I, I can't spend this. That's what you have in Christ coming for you in eternity. You inherit all things. You will lack for nothing and have more than you could imagine for eternity. And best of all, you get Jesus. 
Like, if you know that victory is coming, you can have your life wrung out for the kingdom of God. You're already as secure as you could hope. Your future is as bright as could imagine. So you can kill us, but you can't hurt us. That's the kind of unshakable confidence you can have. You know, that's a better confidence than the world can give. And I'll end on this. The only kind of confidence the world can give, there's only one kind. You know what it is? Self-confidence. That's it. That's what the world is constantly telling you is to be confident in yourself. You know the problem with that? The more you try to build self-confidence, I find the less confident in myself I get. So I was like, I was at a gas station. And I've had car illustrations lately. I don't know why. I'm at a gas station. And you know they have screens on like gas now? It's like, if you're tired of looking at this screen, look at that screen, right? And uh, so I look at that screen and, and they have like these life tips on there. Like, <laughs> getting my life tips from a gas station? Like, what is going on? They have like life tips. And the, the life tip for the day was like how to build self-confidence. And she was like, if you want to build confidence, imagine yourself before a meeting, like go play your favorite song on the radio and get pumped up and get really pumped. And then imagine that you're like a professional wrestling star walking into an arena and that music is playing and, and just get pumped up and you'll, be, you'll have this new, con- I'm like, I can't imagine like me getting up here to preach and the pump-up music starts, right? <laughs> like, all right, come on. Come on, Jeff. You can do it. <sighs> like, like, there are a few times I think God might kill me, right? That might be one of them, right? He might take me out right then. But that doesn't make me confident at all. That makes me incredibly self-conscious. Like, oh my gosh, I'm going to disappoint someone if there's that much hype. And that's the irony of self-confidence. The more confidence you try to put in yourself, the more you kind of think, oh, really? I don't know if I can live up to that. Guess what? You don't have to. All biblical confidence is is faith. It's just trusting in what God has done. That's what God offers you this morning. If you trust in Jesus, all your condemnation is on him. All of his justification is on you. You are eternally secure. Your future is bright. You will have a confidence that the world cannot give and that the world can't take away. Let's pray. So Father, for any who are exploring Christianity or are questioning it, um, I pray you would show them, Lord, just how shaky our lives are when we just... <laughs> We think we can lean on ourselves. That, Lord, it's going to be our talents, our abilities that, that get us through. Um, God, it won't. And, and I pray that we'd have a renewed trust in you, Jesus. You are successful in all you do. You do all things well. And would we see the tremendous relief that comes from just trusting that what you've said is what's true, that we can live in it, and, Lord, that the victory is assured so that we can suffer well and suffer with confidence and not lose heart. Pray it in your name, amen.